Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, I have on with me Greg Snyder from Green and Barrel. You probably know him better from the brand Chickencock, but Green and Barrel being the larger company. Greg, welcome on. It's David, pleasure to be here. So, uh, Chickencock kind of exploded onto the scene a couple of years ago when it got revived. And, of course, there's uh, the name people are a little... They always get up about the name, but um, the fact is that the the product was actually quite solid. It was a really good product, the bourbon and the rye. I'm actually partial to the bourbon, which is rare for me. I usually go more towards the rye, but this bourbon got me. Um, but today, in particular, we're going to be talking about the newest release, the Island Rooster. So the rum-finished bourbon. So Actually, a rum-finished rye. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, the rum-finished rye can't read my own notes sometimes so yes the rum finished rye thank you uh so you know before we get into that uh greg I just want to give you the chance to kind of give a little history of yourself um you've been in the industry for i think aaron's 41 years actually i'm in my 45th year david so, 45th yeah. Year. yeah all right i promise my other notes are much better than these initial ones <laughs> uh so with that yeah just uh take it away okay well um yeah, I actually got started in this industry in 1978. I graduated from Indiana University with a business management degree. And, um, you know, your senior year, there were companies that would come to career placement. And if they were looking for to recruit people, they would put a, a, a sign-up sheet uh, on the wall. And if you were interested in interviewing with that company, you signed up. And then luckily you, you got the interview. And so uh, one of the companies I interviewed with and one of the job opportunities I was given was uh, – a frontline supervisory position with Joseph E. Seagram and son. Uh, at that time, they had a facility in Louisville, Kentucky, and I, I grew up most of my life in southern Indiana right across from Louisville, so it was home, and uh, and that's how I got into it. Um, you know, Seagram was a great training ground. Um, you know, if, if you wanted to learn and you picked up things quick, uh, they kind of gave you an opportunity, and I was kind of put on a fast track and, and literally worked in, in uh, every department within that facility uh, in the five years it was open uh, in, in 1983, like many other dis uh, distilling companies, they they consolidated. You know, the bourbon industry was on a decline, and so mm -hmm. they kind of consolidated. But uh, during my time there, I, I actually worked uh, in the distillery and dryer house. You know, I worked in the barrel warehouse, filling barrels, putting barrels in rigs, taking them out, dumping barrels, uh, you know, gauging tanks, filtration, blending, processing, receiving, shipping, bottling. Uh, quality, maintenance, you name it. I, I got an opportunity to work in every department and it gave me a good uh, exposure to, to everything and how they interact. And, and so uh, it was, as I said, it was a great training ground for me, but when they shut that facility down, I had an opportunity to relocate. And instead of, uh, uh, well, I was going to end up in New York City. Basically, I was going to go up to uh, manage a warehouse facility they had in Shannon, Ohio, right outside of Lawrenceburg, Indiana. And um, uh, I was going to be there about nine to 12 months, they said, and then they were going to move me to New York City to the corporate office. And I said, you know, that's not my game plan. I didn't really care to move to New York City. But part of the severance package, they pay for my education for one year. And I was able to work it out with Bellarmine University, uh, where I got my MBA in one year's time and, and Seagram paid for every penny of it. So it that was a great, uh, you know, a great opportunity and, and kind of paid my uh, you know, my career going forward. And, and uh, uh, shortly thereafter, I went to work for Brown Foreman. Um, started out as the manager on their, their bottling operation in the afternoon shift and did that for a little over a year. Then I got a promotion. I was uh, 
in charge of all the materials, all the dry goods, the bottles, the, the, the boxes, the, the closures, everything the bottling needed. I uh, was responsible for you know making sure that we had it in inventory and available when they needed it. And then after about nine months of doing that, they added responsibility and I got responsibility in addition to the dry goods for all the wet goods, you know, tank trucks of Canadian mess coming down from Collingwood, Canada, or tank trucks coming up from uh, Mexico, Pepe Lopez tequila. And then I also had responsibility for the early times warehouse operation, the bear warehouse. So, um, so I actually in total, I, I worked for Brown Foreman for 12 years, but a uh, little over nine of those 12 years, I managed your cooperage operations. I got a promotion and went out to Bluegrass Cooperage at the time. Now they call it Brown Foreman Cooperage because they actually have, have one down in Alabama too. Uh, so they call it Brown Foreman Cooperages, but Bluegrass Cooperage was the name of that. And I managed your cooperage operations for a little over nine years. So, you know, I not only made whiskey and aged whiskey and bottled and shipped whiskey, um, you know, now I learned quite a bit about how important that barrel is. You know, 60 to 70% of the flavor in a good bottle of whiskey actually comes from that white oak barrel. So it's, it's a critical component uh, to, a, to a high quality whiskey. Um, did that. So I was total brown form. I was there a little bit over 12 years, but uh, then I got an opportunity and I went to work for Pernod Ricard. They owned a company called Wild Turkey. I was actually the vice president of Austin Nichols and the managing director for Wild Turkey Distillery. And I did that for a little over 10 years. And uh, that was, again, that was a great opportunity career-wise. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed, uh, you know, Jimmy Russell, Eddie Russell, both worked for me during that time period. But uh, uh, a great group of people down in Anderson County there in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, and, and enjoyed that time. Uh, from there, I ended up going up to Maine. And I managed a facility called um, White Rock Distilleries. You may be familiar with a small privately owned company. Uh, the biggest brand we had when I worked there was Pinnacle Vodka. Uh, you know, we, we basically created the, uh, the dessert category of flavored vodka. And, uh, and it did quite well. It was actually the fastest growing spirit, not just vodka, the fastest growing spirit for three consecutive years. And in 2012, Jim Beam acquired uh, Pinnacle Vodka, along with a small rum brand and the plant assets. And uh, they asked me to move back to Kentucky and head up the transition of those those brands into their facility in Frankfurt, their bottling facility in Frankfurt. So I did that. Uh, transition took a little over a year. And then I left and went to work for a company called uh, Western Spirits down in Bowling Green, Kentucky, as their vice president of operations. Um, you may be familiar with uh, some of their products, Bird Dog Whiskeys, Calumet Farm Bourbon, uh, Sam Houston bourbon, some of those items. But um, I lived in, in, or still live in Southern Indiana. It was about a two hour drive down there. And so that's a little bit too long to commute. So I was living and working in Bowling Green during the week and then driving home on weekends. And I did that for a little over three and a half years, but it just, my wife was having some health issues and it's just got, kind of got too difficult. So that's when I decided to ramp up my retirement plan. And that was not retire, but uh, start my own consulting business. So in uh, June of 2017, I started my own consulting business and Grain and Barrel Spirits was one of the first clients I actually picked up. Um, you know, I was, I started out uh, helping them with some supply chain issues and some operational things. But then, uh, uh, you know, the founder of, of the company, Amadi Antla, who acquired the, the Chicken Cock brand in 2011, um, he approached me one day and said, you know, I, I, I have this vision of wanting to resurrect Chicken Cock back to Kentucky resurrected back to Kentucky and bring it back to its high quality prominence. He said, you know, could you help me do that? Would you serve in the role of master distiller? 
And so um, we agreed, or I agreed to that on terms and so forth. And, and so that's kind of what I've been helping them do uh, for a little over five years now. And, and uh, I, I'm pretty proud of what we've been able to come up with uh, in some of the quality offerings we, we've uh, shared. I mean, it, it's a hell of a history. It actually, uh, so in preparation for these interviews, I was listening to kind of other episodes, other interviews that people have done to try to get as much uh, info as I can for new questions and things like that. And um, you answered one of them right off the bat, which was um, how the hell you got all that cooperage experience. Cause that's not, that's not a normal thing. You know, a, a master distiller will maybe know the base of it. They'll know why the wood is so important, but to be coopering is a very different thing. Um, but jumping back to, to kind of the, not quite the beginning, but I do have to say, I won't hold it against you that you didn't want to move to New York city. Um, it's, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's where I've lived most of my life. So God bless you, man. I, I think it's one of those places that it's a great place to visit, but it really isn't something that uh, fits my lifestyle. So to totally fine. Uh, I was in a, I was in a master's program. I was told you I was in the master's program, 25 of us in the cohort. I was the only native New Yorker and the only person who had lived in New York City before. Um, only one of the other 24 wanted to stay after their degree. Everyone was like, this is way too much. I got to get out of here. Like, I can't do the subway. It's too crowded. So I, I, do, I do understand. I won't hold it against you. Um, you uh, so uh, you, you also told, uh, skipped over something, a wild turkey that I wanted to mention. Um, you, so you were just on my friend Perry's uh, podcast. This is my bourbon podcast. Okay, yeah. And uh, on that one, and uh, on one other, you also mentioned that uh, at what, when you were VP of, at Austin Nichols and managed director for Wild Turkey, you started a certain brand that's kind of grown since then. Yeah, I uh, let me elaborate on that a little bit. You know, I uh, I hadn't been there very long, probably I don't know three or four months, and uh, you know the top management at Pernod Ricard came to me and said, you know, we think we have too much whiskey. Um, you know, you mind taking a look at it and letting us know? I said, I can do that. But I said, I need to know what your sales forecast are going out into the future. Hmm. And so they said, well, just take all the brands and, and uh, figure 2% growth for the next three years. And I said, well, that's great. But in order to do it properly, you got some 12 year old whiskeys. I need to know out at least 12 years. And so to keep it simple, they said, we'll just figure 2% growth on all the different brands for the next 12 years. And so I had this, I call it a liquidation distillation model. It's just a simple Excel spreadsheet that I, I developed uh, actually when I was at Brown Foreman. But, um, um, and so I, I used this and plugged in their sales forecast and, and ran the numbers. And, and so I had a meeting up in New York City uh, to kind of go over this. And we had uh, actually some of the top brass from France was there. Uh, we had the finance uh, folks there, the marketing folks there. And uh, I said, the answer is this. I said, you don't have too much whiskey, but you have too much old whiskey. Hmm. And they get a little puzzled and said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, for quite a while now, the finance group out of the offices of the headquarters in New York City were telling the folks down in Kentucky what barrels to pull to dump for the various products. And at that time, of course, uh, Wild Turkey 101 was probably – 75 to 80% of the total volume. And for Wild Turkey 101, they were using six and a half year old Wild Turkey bourbon. Mm -hmm. Well, the next year would roll around and now this product they were using last year, they weren't using it. Well, you go back and look back six and a half, seven years prior to that, they were making far more whiskey 
and what they were dumping and bottling in the current day that I was doing this, this, this study. And so another year would roll around and the finance folks said, well, no, no, we, we can't use that seven-year-old now or seven and a half-year-old because it's another year older. There's another year of alarm taxes. You know, there's mm -hmm. more evaporation. And so our component cost is going to increase. We can't increase our component costs. Well, that went on for a number of years. And I said, I said guys, you've, you've got to bite the bullet. you got to use it. Now, you start blending it off, not, not in high percentages so that you dramatically change the taste profile, but you got to use it. You got to, you know, it's going to bump your component cost stuff a little bit. But, you know, hopefully through other efforts, we can kind of, uh, you know, keep some of the cost in check if not, not do better on some of the cost. And so I said, that's, that's one of the options. Second option is you can try to sell uh, barrel goods on the open market. Well, and, and this was in 1998. 1998, nobody was buying, uh, you know, mature whiskey in, in a barrel. Not like it is today. Right. And so, um, uh, but I said, the third option, I said, you know, we can come up with a, a new bourbon brand. I said, you know what? It's high time this company paid tribute to one of the greatest master distillers that ever, ever walked this earth. And that's Jimmy Russell. And uh, they looked at each other and said, yeah, that's a great idea, but what, what would we call it? And I said, well, for lack of a better term, I said, better name, why don't we call it Russell's Reserve? And so that's actually how Russell's Reserve came about. It's paying tribute to Jimmy Russell. And Jimmy didn't know any about, anything about this was going on. And so uh, I was in New York the following Monday. I was back in, in uh, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, and uh, met up with Jimmy that morning like I did most mornings before I even turned my computer on, walking around the plant. And uh, I said, you know, Jimmy, I said, the company's looking at coming out with a new bourbon. I said, as I recall, we've got some great 10-year-old bourbon on the fourth floor of B Warehouse. You mind grabbing a sample of that? Let's, let's look at that today. He said, okay. And so later on that day, I had a meeting with the union, and we were wrapping up things. And I heard this knock on the door, and, and it's Jimmy. And uh, he said, you got a minute? And I said, yeah, come on in, Jimmy. We're wrapping up. And he brought this little snifter glass, and he said, here's that sample you want to try. And, he handed it to me and I got it a foot from my nose and man, the caramel and vanilla just knocked it, my head off my shoulder. It was so beautiful. It was, it was awesome. And so again, long story short, I'm rambling here a little bit, but I worked with the packaging group and the marketing group and we developed the, the package for it. And again, Jimmy didn't know anything about this, but we came out originally in the tall um, standard wild turkey bottle. And it was screen printed, said uh, wild turkeys, Russell's reserve bourbon, 10 year old. And it was a one-on-one proof at that time. Um, and so once we got everything put together and before we scheduled the bottling, we kind of had a little presentation and, and Jimmy shed a few tears over that, was pretty proud of it. And, and uh, the, you know, the brand, the, the brand's done extremely well. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm happy for Jimmy and, and the Russell family. Yeah, it is. Um, I know it's a favorite of many of my friends and who are with Wild Turkey or have a lot of Wild Turkey on their shelves. They tend to either go for either Russell's Reserve, the ten-year-old, or the or pick, of course, um, either that or the rare breed, and they go back and forth between the two, different profiles. But I know it's a it's a love of theirs. And as I was um, hearing, uh, as I heard you talking about the story, the the image that kind of sticks in my mind is this idea that um, that Jimmy Russell, who at that time was already forty years into his master distilling or his distilling career, I should say, and had become master distiller and even though of course you're also a, a very high up in the company that he's just does this little knock on the door and like peeks his head and he's like hey you got a minute and it's just such a for me it, it's a weird juxtaposition between that and this larger than life 
the bourbon Buddha has won every award kind of guy that you see nowadays or in the last couple of years is, you know, I'll admit I've only been in talking about whiskey, drinking whiskey for a couple of years now. So the only Jimmy Russell that I've known is that guy, the one, you know, he's got a big belly. He's leaning over a barrel with Eddie next to him, maybe Bruce, if it's a more recent one. Uh, But just this idea that he's like, yeah, just take a walk over to warehouse P and try this thing for the fourth floor. Like, you got a minute. I just, I don't know why it's just, it's hilarious to me. And I, I love it because it's uh, it's a mark of kind of also humility too. He's not barging in like I'm the master distiller here. Try this. <laughs> so. uh, Jimmy's a great guy. He's, he's a dear friend and always will be. <clears throat> Fantastic. And I have to admit, I've been down uh, there twice. I'm now coming back from um, a couple of days after coming back from a trip to Kentucky, Tennessee. Uh, next time I'm hoping to come over to your place uh, of course to, to see things, but sure. And your workplace, I should clarify, your workplace. To right, see yeah. these. And, uh, but I've been to Wild Turkey twice now. Unfortunately, it's just not the days that Jimmy was there. I know he likes to go there Sundays after church, but I just didn't line up. But I'm hoping you can see him, take a picture with them, because you got to take a picture with the guy. Sure. Yeah, he's special. So, he's a very special guy. Yep. So um, I definitely want to just go back to that. So uh, another... I'm skipping around a little bit in your in your career before we get to um, the newest phase, the chicken cock phase, um, just because there were a couple of stories that I wanted to expand upon and and get a little more out of. If that's OK with you. Sure. Um, so one of them that you mentioned, uh, I think on Perry's podcast, but also on um, Bourbon Tangent or Whiskey Tangent, which was that uh, when you were at Brown Foreman, that early Woodford was really old Forester. That's correct. Uh, so I, I don't really know a lot about those two brands. I was, I'm not really, I wasn't really a fan of either one of them until the old Forester started coming out with some high proof stuff. And then I became more of a fan. I'm still not a huge Woodford fan, but again, we're talking the modern, whatever's on the shelf right now. Um, I haven't right. really tasted any dusties or anything like that. So uh, what was that? transition like when it was become when it was going from brand to brand you have the two brands working together and sometimes being in each other's bottles so when well in 1996 is when uh, actually brown foreman had their grand opening of the uh, back then it was called labro and graham distillery and then they eventually changed the name to woodford reserve but you know the the first day that they had the grand opening you know they filled the first barrel and Owsley brown who was ceo at that time and Paul Patton was the governor of Kentucky. You know, he was there and they had a big ceremony where both of them signed the first barrel. But that day one, that same day, you could actually buy Woodford Reserve on the shelf. Now, when I worked at Brown Foreman, the only offerings they had of Old Forester that was the 86 proof, which was four and a half year old bourbon, and their 100 proof, the bonded. And so those were the only two Old Foresters that, that were on the shelf back then. Uh, you know, since then, they've come out with a, a full, full line of, uh, variations in that but and uh like other companies just like wild turkey you know um years previous four and a half years ago they made a heck of a lot more bourbon than what they were bottling current day and so they they had a surplus in inventory and so that first day in 1996 when they barreled the first barrel 
the whiskey that was actually in the Woodford Reserve bottle was seven and a half year old Old Forester. And for my, and I loved Old Forester. I really liked it. I mean, whenever we'd have brown forming functions, you know, um, of course, Jack Daniels is a cash cow. And, and I like Jack because I get down to, to Lynchburg at least once a month when I was in the barrel side of the business. But um, uh, whenever there was a, a corporate function, I'd always go with the Old Forester. I really liked the bourbon. And then later on, I went with the Woodford because, uh, you know, seven and a half year old Old Forester uh, to me definitely beats the four and a half year old. And, uh, and that's the way it was for six years. And, and um, to kind of elaborate a little more on that story, you know, Lincoln Henderson, I don't know if you, you ever knew Lincoln or, or uh, remember the name, but Lincoln Henderson was the master distiller for Woodford when they first started Woodford Reserve in 1996. And Lincoln worked in the lab, a great guy. And um, when we were starting up at distillery, you know, I was on the executive production committee. And Lincoln and I kind of went round and round, and, and uh, he was given a direction to try to get as, as many proof gallons per bushel of grain as you could. And so they were coming off the still, you know, to be a bourbon, there, there's four primary cri criteria that the government uh, spells out. Number one, you have to have at least 51% corn in the mash bill. Number two, it can't come off the still higher than 160 proof. Number three, it has to be aged in a new charred oak barrel. And number four, it can't go into a barrel higher than 125 proof. So if you meet those four criteria, basically it's bourbon, day one, it goes into that new barrel. And so Lincoln, in order to get as many proof gallons per bushel, uh, they were coming off the still right at 159, 160 proof. And I said, I plead with Lincoln, I said, don't do it, you're gonna strip all the flavor out. You know, the higher you proof it, the more the flavor you're stripping out of it. And he said, you know, that was the directive I was given, Greg, so that's what, you know, we're trying to achieve. Well. Six years later, after they, uh, you know, after they barreled the first barrel, six years later, they pulled that barrel out of the warehouse and it was not good. It was not good at all. I mean, just, it, it was flavorless. Mm -hmm. And so even then, uh, I think they were using about 90% of the seven and a half year old old Forester uh, with about 10% of what they were actually uh, distilling down at distillery. Now today, I have no idea what it is. I know they've made some adjustments uh, since that time. And, uh, uh, but yeah, that's a true story. Um, and then there's probably still some some relatively aged uh, old force are still in the in the in the mixture. Uh, to your to your knowledge, I know shortly thereafter um, you were moving over to to Austin Nichols and Wild Turkey. But um, to your knowledge, was was Lincoln able to reduce that proof off the still? Uh, I don't think he did while he was there. That was kind of the directive that uh, they they were sticking with, and and. Uh, um, when they actually made some adjustments, I, I really couldn't tell, you know, Lincoln ended up, um, retiring from, from Brown Foreman. And actually you probably know this, but he was actually one of the co-founders of Angel's Envy. Mm -hmm. yep. And, uh, that's going to come up a little bit later as well. Okay. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, why, so that's fine. Um, interesting. So I'm going to have to go back and see, I have a couple of friends who have some early Woodford, some old, old Forrester, um, and, um, yeah, see, see what it tastes like. There's always a little difference in those dusties. So, and they count sure. as dusties now. So, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, so the the next stop that I just wanted to mention briefly because uh, I'm like to be transparent. The the stop at Western Spirits. So, like I said, Bird Dog, Calumet Farms, um, Sam Houston. Um, I have to be honest. I'm pretty sure someone higher up at Sam at at Western Spirits really does not like me now. 
Why is that? Uh, so, so um, I I have never had bird dog. Um, kind of my farms. I was I enjoyed. I wrote a review of um, of Sam Houston. One of the I forget which state it was. It was either New York or the Kentucky um, batch. You know, it was three barrels per um, per state. And I wrote a review and um, it wasn't a bad review. I said, you know, I, I just want more, a little more proof. There's something I felt, I felt like it was missing something, but it wasn't a negative review necessarily. But I think the part that kind of irked him was that um, I'm, I'm big on questioning the marketing aspect of things. And my question really was, I just want to know how it came about that it's a Kentucky whiskey, um, source Kentucky whiskey, named after a texas hero nationally known of course but a texas hero who to our knowledge never distilled a drop in his life um it, it felt like a disconnect with me i'm like there are so many figures in kentucky lore still available to build the brand around why would you do a kentucky bourbon with a texas figure you know what i mean it, like there's lincoln bourbon now which is also sourced but i mean lincoln was born in kentucky so that there's a connection there at least. Um, so I'm, I was given an introduction to this person. I forget the name right now. Um, and I think that's probably for the best. And, um, but I very, I, I never heard back. And then the person who tried to make the introduction, she kind of mentioned offhand. Yeah. He uh, wasn't a big fan of that review of yours. So I, I try to be honest to my reviews. Okay. That was that was really the biggest problem I had with the bourbon. I didn't think it was bad. I just I was just questioning the marketing aspect of it. Um, so I'll throw it to you. I, just, I don't know if you were there during the time when that was being rolled out. Um, but it, you know, if so, I'm I am just curious about how that marketing decision might have come about. So when I, when I was there, David, um, Sam Houston was actually a blended whiskey. Okay, <laughs> I think the the impetus behind it was they the you know texas is a huge whiskey market sure. and so they were trying to pull in some texas folklore and i think that's why they and i you know i, I wasn't involved in these decisions i mean the brand existed when i started working there but mm -hmm. you know from everything that i could surmise i i, I think that um, um that's what they were trying to do is, is bring some texas you know connection there uh to help mm -hmm. sales in texas uh mm -hmm. being such a huge market uh, but again, it was a blended whiskey back then. I mean, it had bourbon in it, but it had, I think it had some pear flavor. It had different kind of flavors uh, blended in with it. And, uh, you know, I wasn't a big fan of it when I worked there, but, uh, uh, you know, and then he talked about bringing it back as a, resurrecting it as a bourbon brand. And eventually they did. So, but I think that's why I, I again, I can't speak to it because I wasn't there. Don't know definitively what the, uh, the thought process was behind it, but the best I could uh, could tell was they were just trying to make some some Texas connection there to help help sales in Texas. Look, that that makes perfect sense and is a is a perfectly acceptable answer. Of course, I won't hold it to you as you representing the the brand. I'm not doing that, but um, that's honestly all I was asking for on the review. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> just have the have the conversation with me because I I'm I'm I would I wanted to know. I wasn't anyway. So. That was my my last thing on there. I just wanted to mention. Uh, so anyway, so you've gone through this incredible career already. Um, we will come back to the cooperage part of it because that is a fascination of mine. 
but so you've semi-retired, uh, you're moving into consulting and this opportunity with grain and barrel comes up. Uh, now you said, um, that, that Madi came to you and said, I, you know, this is a, a long, a very old brand, a favorite in, in Harlem and cotton club in Harlem, a favorite of Duke Ellington's, it goes back a very long time, but hadn't been around in half century, three quarters of a century at that point. I want to resurrect it not only as a brand, but also with the quality that it deserves and, and requires. Um, when you were talking to Perry, uh, you had mentioned, you know, just as any young distillery, young product needs, you need to have some cash flow. And um, in, in what you've described earlier, when you were at Austin Nichols, clearly the MBA puts you kind of at, a, at another level because you're understanding the business side from a real, like, here's the spreadsheet, here's the projection. This is what you need kind of uh, viewpoint. So when you agreed to come on, what aspects of the brand in terms of reputation did you prioritize um, in, in promoting the quality over, over anything else? So, yeah, let's, to, to give folks kind of a, a background, you know, earlier you mentioned about the name and, and how people, uh, you know, kind of um, are taken back a little bit, let's say, by, by the name of the brand. And, you know, when I do tastings all over the country, that's the first question I get. Where'd you come up with that name? And so I tell people, you know, the, the brand originated in 1856 in Paris, Kentucky. It's an old, old brand with, with rich in tradition and history. And, and uh, but the gentleman that, that built this distillery, a guy by the name of James A. Miller built a distillery in Paris, Kentucky in 1856. And he was making a whiskey he was so proud of, he felt it was worth crowing about. And that's why he called it chicken cock whiskey. Now, in 1856, Americans were still using the old English language. And the term for a male chicken was a cock. The term rooster didn't come about until the late 1800s or early 1900s. And so that's that's how the, the, the brand got its name. Um you know, throughout the history, you mentioned the Cotton Club. You know, it was a house whiskey at the Cotton Club during the Roaring Twenties and and did well, had a high quality reputation after Prohibition was repealed. And then in the 1950s, early 1950s, the, the distillery had a fire and burnt to the ground and the company that owned it decided not to rebuild and the brand just sat idle. And then, as you said, over half a century later, you know, in 2011, actually, uh, Monty was doing some research trying to find a whiskey brand. And he ran across the history of chicken cock and found it interesting. And so he was able to acquire the brand rights. But to the point you were making is that, you know, Grain and Barrel is a small company. You know, they don't have their own distillery, don't have their own operational assets. And so they needed cash flow. And the, the quickest way, the easiest way to do that, Monty was able to acquire some very young whiskey. They put it in an aluminum bottle. And he added some flavor, you know, they had a, a cinnamon flavor, they had a root beer flavor, they had several different flavors. And it served its purpose, you know, he, he you know, brought the brand back as, as a, a flavored whiskey, and it served its purpose, it created cash flow. A little while later, again, he was still, still able to buy this young six-month-old whiskey, and um, they came out with the Chicken Cock uh, Heritage, which was bourbon, and then Chicken Cock Bootlegger which was a bourbon rye blend. And again, 
it served its purpose. It created cash flow, but it didn't really do anything to, to help the, the quality reputation that the brand once had. And, and so once uh, I think Grain and Barrel was able to uh, pull in a few more investors and generate some cash flow, uh, you know, Madi knew its future was, was to really bring it back to its high quality prominence. And so uh, that's when he hired my consulting services in 2017. And, and uh, I'm not an actual employee of Grain and Barrel Spirits. I'm actually a paid consultant uh, in my role of master distiller. So. Uh, but yeah, that's, um, you know, he, he saw the future for the brand was uh, back in the, in the, the premium sector. And so that's kind of what we've done. And, and when he asked me, you know, if, if, you know, would you help me resurrect it back to Kentucky and would you serve in a role of master distiller? And that's what I told him. I'll do it on one condition. We stop buying this young crap and let's truly focus and, and, and everybody focus on bringing it back to its high quality prominence. So, so far, that's what we've been able to do. Uh, what do you think was the biggest hurdle that you faced in in doing that or was it really smooth sailing once you got Marty's backing oh no it's not smooth sailing because you know one of the things you know from 2011 to 2017 i guess it was um you know um the, the quality reputation took a hit and when i started doing tastings and so forth that was the biggest hurdle i had to, to get over i mean people say oh i've tasted it before i, I don't want that rot gut you know it's that's so well no you haven't tasted this i kind of explain, you know, what we did and what we were doing. And, and, you know, just like the, the Woodford reserve story day one, you just can't, you know, flip the switch and say, Oh, I got magically aged whiskey now. You know, uh, mm-hmm. when I started as master distiller, uh, as you're probably aware of David, you know, we formed a relationship with Bardstown bourbon company and, and that's the home of chicken cock whiskey. Now that's what we're making. So we started laying whiskey down. Well, to give that time, you know, you got number like I said, number one, you got to have lots of money. Number two, you got to have lots of patience because you got to let it age. And so to give it properly, you know, enough time to properly age and mature, part of my responsibilities, I would go out and I'd try to find good quality whiskey that we could acquire and put under the chicken cock label to bridge the gap until ours became of, of age. And so uh, we're, we're getting that point now this past year is the first whiskey that we've actually, the first bourbon uh, we dumped uh, to start using. And, and then a, few, a couple of years ago when our rye came out, that was actually uh, part of our relationship with Bardstown Bourbon Company. We actually produced that rye at, at Bardstown Bourbon Company, rye, 100%. Um, but the bourbon itself, um, what, what we have in the bourbon bottle today is not 100% of what we laid down. Uh, it's a little over 80% of, of our four-year-old that we laid down and then it's blended with some of the other stuff that I was able to acquire some seven and 15-year-old currently. But uh, uh, it's, it's good bourbon. I think, uh, I think we've, we've met the, the challenge of, of, of reestablishing the, the high-quality um, reputation. And again, it's not easy. It's still, even today, uh, occasionally I get people say, oh, I've tasted that years ago. I, I don't like it. It's, okay. So. No, I... I... I understand. And the, the reputation question is hard because it's such a, you can lose reputation much quicker than you can gain it. Absolutely. And um, I think of a, of a, a, a good parallel as green river in Owensboro, you know, they uh, another very long storied brand and distillery that uh, once was revived in 2014, 2015, kind of did these parallel processes of the you had the calls on one side doing bourbon kind of the traditional way do it well age it well let it sit but um for most of that time also until about a year and a half ago you also had that terrapure system right for aging too too 
distillery's uh, renamed OZ Tyler temporarily. Now it's back to Green River, but um, the the OZ Tyler name really took a it took a hit on the quality and reputation of the brand. And uh, I'm happy to say, at least from from a consumer's perspective, from my perspective as a consumer, the Green River Bourbon they put out earlier this year as their first you know real product in a while was excellent um wheelhorse whiskey who i've talked to also who sources from them get bourbon and rye from them and it's great and they've moved the terrapure out but to overcome the reputation that that other system had uh imparted was no small feat they really had to come out with a banger product right away that's and a great they, analogy yeah it is yeah, yeah. and uh Unfortunately, I think the another one that didn't quite work out yet, and I'm I'm saying yet because I want to give them a little more time, was um, Castle and Keep. Uh, the products I've had so far, they they just need, I think they just need more time. Uh, but they're they're dealing with this huge reputation and and length of history. You know, you're on the site, you're next to the Doc Crow site. Uh, it's beautiful, but the whiskey's got to match the story and everything that goes along with it. Right. Um, so with Chickencock being the, you know, the house bourbon of one of the hottest clubs in Harlem during you know, the roaring 20s during Prohibition. So, of course, would have been uh, speakeasy style, but was still read, always made readily available, let's say, at the club. Um, that's a big reputation to live up to. It's kind of like every decade, I feel like, has their their bourbon that everyone has to match, you know. And that was the one for chicken cock with. So going over to, uh, to the Bardstown bourbon company connection. Um, okay. So yes, did, didn't know that coming in, but uh, of course I always want to dig a little deeper. So forgive me. I forgot the phrase you used earlier, but it was about, it was basically about liquid strategy. Um, you used it in reference to uh, what you were doing at, at wild Turkey when you saw they had too much old, bourbon um it was liquidation liquidation distillation model I thought. there you yeah. go it, it not only tells you what you need to have sitting in the warehouse to meet mm -hmm. current days and, and future year sales but also as you carry it out further it tells you what you need to, to produce and lay down to meet even sales farther out into the, the future right so i'm going to write that down before i forget it again okay all right uh so I was, I forget who I was talking to recently, another interview, and uh, they were talking a lot about liquid strategy, which it covers the same ideas. You know, you can't, you need to know not only how much you're going to sell, where you're going to sell it, um, make sure you have enough to backfill once you've sold that first set. You know, you can't just sell what you have and then be like, whoop, got no more whiskey. You know, you have to have a strategy to keep it going if you want to keep it going. Um, Bartstown was an interesting case because they, as a distiller, had before they put a brick down they had their first year or two of production capacity sold already right. and um in talking to david mandel about kind of how that came about he said they needed the, to make sure the cash flow was going to be there they would contract to still for others put down their own uh their own distillate as well but most of their business at that time would be contract distilling and letting other people come into their kitchen um, so by the time you're coming in with, with chicken cock, this is 2017, 
Bardstown's been around for a couple of years. It's still under, at that time, original ownership. Um, were you able to just go in and say, from day one of the relationship, you know, these are the specs that we need for this bourbon. This is the temperature. This is the time. This is the yeast we're going to use, the mash bill, all that. Um, and then, so that's the first part of the question is, were you able to do that day one? And then did you have to experiment to find that first? So, yeah, I, I'd had a little, uh, uh, let's just say I had worked with those folks prior to Grain and Barrel Spirits. When, when they were, when they had just broken ground, uh, you know, I was the vice president of operations at Western, Spir or Western Spirits. And mm -hmm. Steve Nally, the master distiller's old dear friend of mine, you know, Steve just celebrated his 50th year in, in the industry. So he's been at it a few years longer than I have. But, but Steve and I go way back. I've probably known Steve 40 years, I'm guessing. But anyhow, I'm just a great guy. And so when I reached out to him about producing some whiskey for Western Spirits, you know, he connected me with David Mandel and, and we hit it off. And, and so uh, from day one, uh, you know, they were producing whiskey for um, for Western Spirits. So since I had had a previous relationship with them, you know, getting grain and barrel spirits uh, involved was was much easier. And so when I started helping grain and barrel spirits, you know, that was the first place I recommended we, we go to. I mean, it's it's a great location. You know, they're, they're right off the Bluegrass Parkway, um, you know, right on the Bourbon Trail. So you get all the exposure of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. Uh, and they've assembled the, the, one of the greatest teams I think this industry's ever seen. They've got a fabulous group of people there. They, they put in some fabulous equipment and keep upgrading the equipment, seems like, every year. And they're making some fantastic whiskey. Um, you know, you mentioned contract distillation. Well, their program actually goes beyond contract distillation. There, there's distilleries out there that'll make whiskey, they'll put it in a barrel, and you can buy those barrels, and it's yours. You know, you just pay for the, the aging. You know, every year it sits, or every month it sits in a warehouse. You, you got to pay a fee and the, the associated uh, expenses. But at Bardstown Bourbon Company, they have what they call a collaborative distillation program. And through that program, you know, uh, I was able to give them our mash bill. You know, our mash bill for our bourbon is 70% corn, 21 rye, and 9% malted barley. And then our mash bill for our rye is a 95 rye, 5% malted barley. But in addition to the mash bills, I gave them the work instructions. You know, from, from my experience, my knowledge, you know, I gave them the time and temperatures. I wanted to cook the grains. I gave them the, the enzymes I want to use. I gave them the specifications for fermentation, beer chemistry, and distillation. And so that when they produce our bourbon or our rye, uh, you know, they get it on the schedule, they give me notice. And then I don't care if it's two o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, you know, Sunday morning. I'm there to kind of oversee the process and make sure they get it started right and following the work instructions right. Because, they, you know, they, they've got. I'm guessing roughly 23 to 25 different companies they make whiskey for. And, and out of those companies, it's 50 some odd different mash bills. So it can get a little confusing sometimes, but, um, but again, they've got a great, great team and, and uh, they're doing a fantastic job and I couldn't be prouder to, to, to be associated with them. Absolutely. And if, uh, if anyone's listening, hasn't been down to, to visit, it's an incredible tour. As you said, the, the equipment is, state of the art, you know, as cool as it is to go into a distillery and see this really old copper equipment um, that has its own uh, attraction and its own value as well. But also to see this distillery that is so flexible, um, shiny and new and producing so much, uh, so much whiskey and also so much variety, as you pointed out, is really an experience. It's yeah. just a gorgeous facility. Yeah. They've also got a great tasting bar. That's not just Bardstown products, I should say. Um, and 
a uh, really good menu as well if you can get there for uh, for lunch. It's a little hard now. They're a little short of employees in that area, unfortunately. Who isn't? Yeah. But it's a really yeah, great place to visit. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you were saying the you have the mash build for both the bourbon and the rye. Uh, you knew what enzymes you wanted to use, the yeast, the time, the temperature, the fermentation. Uh, this might sound like a really simplistic question, but how did how did you know that those were the specs that you wanted to use right off the bat? And um, did did you have to do any tinkering when you saw the final product? The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilholman, Pandaren, Portiskeg, Glenallachie, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more, there's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. And now, a word from our newest sponsor. The most exclusive whiskey in the world can't be bought in a store. Born in Edinburgh, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society is the world's largest whiskey club, with over 30,000 members worldwide. They bottle each cask of whiskey as is, no diluting, no artificial coloring, or chill filtration. With new whiskeys released every week, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society offers the opportunity to taste spirits straight from the cask. I've been a member for over two years now, and I've loved the chance to explore my favorite distilleries with truly unique offerings, in particular from distilleries 4 and 53, and discovering new single malts not available anywhere else. Not a Scotch fan? No problem. The Scotch Malt Whiskey Society releases 20-plus bottles each month to its members, including, yes, Scotch, but also including gin, bourbon, rum, and more. In fact, my favorite recent bottling was a corn whiskey, from the largest family-owned distillery in the U.S., aged 11 years in New Oak and bottled at cast strength. This is a bottling that people have clamored for for years, and it was only available to Scotch Malt Whiskey Society members. If you're interested in joining, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society has graciously offered a discount to listeners of this podcast. Use code WRP, short for Whiskey Ring Podcast, at checkout for 20% off an annual membership at smwsa.com. That stands for Scotch Malt Whiskey Society of America. I will also be putting the link and code in my bio and show notes for this and upcoming episodes. Thank you to the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society for joining the Whiskey Ring Podcast as our newest sponsor, and please visit smwsa.com with code WRP for 20% off your annual membership. Actually, the only tinkering we had to do for the second round was we, we adjusted the uh, the set temperatures. The temperature after the mash has been cooked, you cool it down, okay, before you put it into a fermenter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in their fermenters, they have cooling coils, so they're able to control the temperature. If, if you don't have cooling coils and in the heat of the summer, 
that mash, you know, it, it generates heat. Uh, the, the yeast interacting with, with the sugar and converting it into ethanol, you know, puts off carbon dioxide. And so it, it gets pretty hot. And, and so if that heat gets up to, I don't know, 93 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit, it starts killing off the yeast. And so uh, you end up uh, uh, getting much lower yields uh, per bushel of grain. And so the second, second go around, the only thing we really tweaked was just the set temperature. Uh, we didn't set it high enough in the fermenter given that time. And that, that's still early in the process. They were still kind of learning their equipment and so forth. And so uh, we didn't put it high enough and didn't give the yeast time enough to work. I think we came out with somewhere around like 4.8 uh, proof gallons per bushel is one of the measures we use. And, and typically it should be around 5.2. So ever since then, it's been, been at least 5.2 proof gallons per bushel of grain. And so um, that's the only thing we had to tweak. I mean, as far as the, the what why I came up with that, again, it's just, I used you know, my years of experience at Seagram's, at Brown Foreman, at, at uh, Wild Turkey, um, you know, to, to, to me, that those were the ideal, given, given the mash bill that we, we created as well. Because that, that was another thing. A lot of people ask, well, was that the original mash bill that Chicken Cock used in 1856? And unfortunately, I mean, that was no way of us knowing this. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, that's, uh, that, that information is not archived anywhere. That, well, yeah, there was, of course, going to be one of my next questions. But um, with that said, have you... Have you or the team found any of those old chicken cock ba uh, bottles, even from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and gotten to try them? Uh, I haven't had the opportunity to try them. If, if you ever get down to Bardstown, uh, you may have been there, David. It's uh, the Oscar Getch Museum. Um, I, I encourage people to go by there. Within that museum, they have the entire history of the whiskey industry in, in Kentucky. And it's, it's pretty interesting, but they have some old, old pre-prohibition bottles. And, and some of those, they have some old, old chicken cock bottles on display there. Now, again, we haven't been able to try them. And, and people say, well, can't you taste the whiskey or do a, a, a chemical analysis and, and find out what the mash bill was? Now, when, when you distill that, you pretty much destroy the DNA. So uh, it's, it's, it's impossible to really tell what the original mash bill was. So basically... Um, you know, we, we tried to shoot for, for a, a mash bill that we felt was was representative of, of the brand during that time period. Makes sense. If uh, if they figure out a way to kind of do one of those um, syringes through the corks or something to grab you some of that from the Getz Museum. <laughs> I, I don't think you can turn that down if they can make that happen. Be hard, yeah, be hard. Um, but uh, it's it's worth saying that you you really can't you can do a lot of chemical analysis and you can try to figure out the mash bills from a finished bourbon, but there are so many, uh, so many variables that go into it. Sure. It's really not, it's not feasible in the way that people think about it. I mean, we should also mention we can't recreate things from 30, 40 years ago, let alone a hundred <laughs> years ago, the way they were. I mean, grain is different. Wood is different. Environment's different. Uh, there are so many things that are different than it was back then. It's just not, not possible but very much so yeah you know but still the intention is there from from you from Madi, from the team to create a product that is worthy of the chicken cock history and name and that can revive it to the reputation uh that i think it it has now achieved you know you might still get a laugh at the name fine whatever um but <laughs> yeah you'd be amazed but, the number of comedians out there david <laughs> uh, yeah kind of <laughs> I I know I believe it, um, but once people taste the whiskey, I mean, again, I uh, 
Aaron, who set this up for us, was generous to send me uh, samples of the of both chicken cock rye and bourbon um, a couple months ago now at this point, and I got to try it. I had no expectation, um, good, bad, otherwise. I knew nothing really about the brand. So I went in pretty blind neutral. Um, but and I again I was I was really impressed with it. I, I enjoyed it, um, particularly the bourbon. And I think I'm almost out, so I might need some to get some more. But uh this time I'll grab the bottle myself. So now getting into the the real meat of the what we're talking about. And this is kind of how these episodes go. Like I know we've been talking for about 45 minutes and we're just getting to kind of the meat of the subject now, but we, we go on tangents here. We go in rabbit holes. That's, that's the whole fun of it. Uh, so one of the most unique things about chicken cock is what I consider the vertical integration that you guys have, that you as the master distiller can control everything from grain to barrel, everything in between. Um, not only can you control it, but you can also do all of the things in between as well, um, which is a very unique position and skill set for master distiller to have. Uh, for for you, what what do you think that adds as a master distiller? That uh, you know, I hesitate to say another master distiller might not have, but. Of course, being able to know the cooperage and, and all of this and being able to pick mash bills and enzymes off the top of your head, you know, you have an additional skill set. So what do you think that additional set brings to, to your role? Well, you know, throughout my career, I, throughout my career, one of the things that uh, I've always stressed in, in my various roles of management is in order to, to establish consistency, not just consistency itself, but consistency of high quality is the more processes you can control, uh, the better chance you have of achieving uh, high quality consistency. And, and the same thing with, with, with making good whiskey, okay? Um, from the whiskey side, from, from you know, the, the mashing, the cooking, the, the fermentation and distillation, you know, we, we've got a great handle on that. But I mentioned earlier, um, that uh, 60 to 70% of the flavor in a great bottle of whiskey actually comes from that white oak barrel. And so through my experience uh, in the cooperage industry, uh, I basically for chicken cock, and one of the things that makes chicken cock so unique from any other whiskey that I'm aware of is that uh, I have oversight from bark to barrel to bourbon to bottle. When I started my consulting company, another one of my early clients uh, was a group in, in West Virginia. Um, don't know if you're familiar with uh, White Sulphur Springs, but there's a, a beautiful exclusive resort there called the Greenbrier. And in those Appalachian Mountains, that's all that's there. Uh, it's pretty economically depressed, but there's a group of guys that are pretty fluent and they, they got together one Christmas party and they said, you know, what kind of business can we start to create jobs for this, this area? And one of the guys in that group was a guy by the name of Tag Gay. Tag is one of the co-founders of Smooth Amber Distillery in Maxilton, West Virginia. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, Pernod Ricard ended up acquiring that, that distillery. And uh, but Tag's a great guy. And he was telling these guys, you know, here, a couple of years, past couple of years, I've had a hard time getting barrels. 
He says, you know, in these Appalachian mountains, we got all kinds of white oak. Instead of seeing those trees cut down and shipped overseas, you know, why don't we cut them down and, and make barrels and create a, a cooperage? And so uh, they all agreed and they reached out to a consultant they were using. He picked up the phone and called me right away and said, hey, Greg, this is in your wheelhouse. You want to take it over? So I did and worked with these guys. And uh, we created a business called West Virginia Great Barrel Company. You know, I helped them design their cooperage. I uh, uh, helped them design their stave mill. Once they got the stave mill built, I went out and I trained their employees how to quarter saw white oak, you know, how to cut staves and heading, you know, what defects to look for, how to edge it up how to uh, properly stack it so you get good airflow through the stack. And then when they got the Cooperage built, um, I went out and helped train their employees how to build a quality barrel. And so through that relationship for chicken cock, I go out a year in advance and I go to their stave mill, to their log yard. And I personally select the logs that we're going to use to cut in the stays and heading. And we're going to let it sit outside in natural air drive for 10 to 12 months for the following year. When we can bring it in, we'll build the barrel and actually uh, uh, fill those barrels from the, the, the logs that I selected. And when typically the way it works now is when uh, I get the schedule at Bardstown Bourbon Company, about a week and a half before we're scheduled to make our bourbon or our rye whiskey, I'll go back out to the cooperage. We'll pull in the stays and heading that we cut last year from those logs I selected. Now I'm married to oversee the production of the barrels to make sure the barrels are constructed properly, to make sure they're toasted properly to our medium plus toast specification, and then make sure they're charred properly later in the process to number three level char. And so, um, you know, having control over that, again, it gives you a tighter control over the processes involved through every step. Um, and I, I'm, I mean, I taste our whiskey every six months. Uh, that it matures in warehouses there in Bargetown. And I'm telling you, I don't believe in accelerant maturation. You talked about the TerraPure process, mm -hmm. and that was kind of their whole emphasis was, well, we're accelerating the maturation. I'm sorry, you know, I'm not knocking them, but I, I don't believe in accelerated maturation. Um, you still need time and temperature changes. However, in four years, when I create so much more flavor that's available in that white oak, I can extract that much more flavor. So in four years, our bourbon is tasting closer to six-year-old bourbon just because of what we've been able to create flavor-wise in the white oak to be able to extract out that same time period. Yeah, it's it's really an amazing story to create, basically create your own cooperage. It's, it's to me, it mirrors what Brown Foreman has been doing for, for many years, as you were noting, for having their own cooperage. Uh, and yes, a lot of it goes to Jack, of course, but... Uh, Goes to, of course, Woodford, Old Forester, all these different brands, but they're choosing their own cooperage. They're overseeing it. They're making sure it's to their specifications. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask a little bit more about was the um, the choice to air dry for you know ten to twelve months. In the industry, we see anywhere from that to from like six months to you know the extreme end four years of seasoning for for staves or for you know for for the oak that becomes staves. Uh, what about that particular age range really sung to you when matching it with the whiskey? So, you know, to your point, I'd say the far majority, and I'm saying probably at least 80% of the distilleries in Kentucky, they have no aid, uh, no natural air drying requirement and specification. You know, mm -hmm. as soon as they can get those staves and heading cut, the cooperage has to get it in their pre-dryer it's going to take about 30 days, about a month's time at 90 degrees Fahrenheit with air blowing constantly uh, on those on those stays and pieces of heading. 
to get it down to 20% moisture. Once it's down to 20% moisture, then you can take those stacks and stage the heading and you can put them in a kiln and expose them to 150, 160 degrees Fahrenheit and finish air or drying them down to the nine to 14 percent moisture that it has to be before you actually machine it and cut it cleanly and, and, and uh, you know, build the barrel. Um, again, that nine to 14 percent moisture is critical. If it's if you're, you've got stage in the heading that's coming in too wet, the wood doesn't cut cleanly. It, it just tears. And so you didn't don't get a nice, good, flat, smooth joint and you, you'll have have leakage problems. Um, and, and so typically most barrels, uh, they're pre-dried and kiln dried. And again, if, if you do it properly, that takes uh, huh, probably five to six weeks at, at the most. And so they, you know, turn around quicker. Now right. to natural air dry it, you know, that's a lot of money. White oak's not cheap. And so that's money sitting on the ground. It's a lot more expensive requiring natural air dry. Okay. Uh, what happens in that process and the reason that, that I believe in the natural air drying, uh, two things. One of the things that I'm looking for when I select logs, I'm looking for extreme, extremely tight grain oak. By industry standard, tight grain means at least 10 annual growth rings per inch. If you look at the end of the log, you see the annual growth rings. Hmm. 10 annual growth rings per inch constitutes a, a tight grain. And those Appalachian mountains, I mean, that soil is rough and rocky and, and the trees that are on a north facing slope aren't getting the sunlight. And so there's an extremely high percentage of tight grain oak. Uh, they're averaging, the trees that I select, they're probably averaging at least 12 to 15, if not more, annual growth rings per inch. Hmm. Now, what that does, it gives you such a high concentration, a high density of the chemical composition that's, that's in that white oak that you can convert into a lot of the great flavors. And so that's why I'm selecting tight grain oak. Now, natural air drying. When we natural air dry, what happens, you want the rain, you want the snow and the wind and the hot and the cold hitting and exposing that wood. What it does, it creates a fungal growth on the outside. You'll see it, it starts turning gray and gets a little greenish fungal growth on the outside of the wood. And so within that fungal growth, the microbial activity starts degrading the cellular structure and opening up the cellular structure, the grain of the wood, to where when the rain hits and the wind blows, it leaches out pulls out a lot of the harsh tannic acid and bitter phenolic compounds that you don't want to impart in the flavor of your whiskey. And so, again, it's a twofold process. I'm leaching out those undesirable flavors, but I'm also opening up the grain so later in the process, when I build the barrel, I can get heat deeply penetrated into that wood to reach those chemicals and make the conversion. One of the reasons white oak is used, and, and you know, Pull out the shepherd's hook if I get out on a tangent here too much, David. But there, okay. um, there, you know, ty, uh, white oak contains a substance called tylosis. Tylosis is a membrane that that lies on the inner inner surface of the cell, and when that tree is cut or goes through hardship, that that membrane collapses. And so when it's quarter sawn, it won't leak. Now, when I say quarter sawn. Um, Basically, if you flat saw, you just keep cutting the same piece of wood. And what happens is you see that big, wide, flowery grain pattern on, on a tabletop or desktop. That's flat sawn. The, the medullary rays, which is basically the vein structure, goes vertical through that piece of wood. By quarter sawing, those medullary rays actually stay horizontal no more than 45 degrees. And so that piece of wood won't leak. 
Other species, you know, red oak, pin oak, maple, cherry, they don't contain tylosis. So if you try to make a barrel out of those species of wood, they leak like a sieve. So that's one of the important chemical compositions. The other thing is that white oak contains, uh, other than oak black tones, contains cellulose, hemicellulose, and lignin. Cellulose is a primary cellular structure and makes that wood hard and strong. The hemicellulose is where the polysaccharides are, the wood sugars. And so when you build that barrel, you take the staves that have been freshly jointed and plain, and they start raising the barrel, and they start putting those staves and fitting them tight to, tightly together in a temporary truss unit. And then that barrel will go through a steam tunnel and they'll, they'll make it more pliable with heat and with, with uh, moisture. So when it comes out, they got a big cone that comes down and pulls those staves together and bends the staves and they put a temporary hoop on the other side. One of the things that helped the guys design it at uh, West Virginia Great Barrel Company is a heating carousel. It's clean heat. What they do is they take the outer shell of that barrel. Doesn't have the heads in it yet. It's just the outer shell of the staves have already been bent and they set it on a turret. And that turret spins as it goes around this carousel. But before it takes off, there's an infrared heating element that comes down inside that barrel. And it's 36 inches in length. It goes from top to bottom of those staves. And right away, it's putting off about 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And so since we've already natural air dry, I can get that heat deep into that, that wood. And so the hemicellulose, getting back to it, you know, chemistry 101, you took sugar in a spoon and you held it over a Bunsen burner. Well, it starts melting and caramelizing. Mm -hmm. That's where you're getting your caramel flavor. So by heating up the inside of that barrel and driving that heat deep into the wood, we're converting that hemicellulose into the caramel substance. Likewise, when you toast that barrel, the third component, lignin, when you heat lignin up, it converts it into vanillin, and that's where your vanilla flavor is coming from. So we're getting it deep, deep into that, that wood. Now, later on the process, before the heads are put into it, we're going to char that barrel. And I'm only going to char a number three level char. There's four levels of char, four being the heaviest and deepest. I just created a bunch of great flavor. The last thing I want to do is burn it away. And so mm -hmm. I'm only going to give it number three level char. I just want to blister the surface just enough to, to create that charcoal filtering effect and allow good penetration of the whiskey into the wood passing through that char layer. Um, again, you know, the char layer, a lot of people think that the char layer, uh, gives it flavor and, 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 and its color. It may enhance the color a little bit, but the charring is, its primary purpose is charcoal filtering. When you put whiskey in that barrel, you taste the corn and the rye and the malted barley, the, you, the, the grains are heavy. And so through the maturation, the heating of the summers and the cooling of the winters, it's pushing that whiskey into that wood, you know, passing through that char layer. And that char layer, acting like a charcoal filter, strips out the graininess flavor and it picks up all those great sweet caramel, vanilla, and oak black tones, and then pulls it back out. And so through that movement in and out, it's passing through that char layer. So the char layer's primary purpose is charcoal filter. We talked a little bit earlier about economics. You know, again, I'd say 80% of distilleries in Kentucky, their barrel specs are a number four level char, no toast. Mm -hmm. Again, they don't have any natural air drying. It's, you know, just get it dried as quickly as you can, and let's get the barrel in here as quickly as you can and a number four level char, no toast. Well, to natural air dry that barrel and to toast it before you char it, you're probably looking at at least 20, in today's situation, you're probably looking closer to $50 extra a barrel to, mm. to do those processes. Again, that's, that's interest money sitting on the ground out there when it's natural air dry. It's a lot of money mm. in that white oak. And so 
again, I'm not knocking anybody because all the, all the stories are making great whiskey, but when you do it, a number four level char, you're going to get about an eighth inch of char on the surface. And just inside there, you're going to get about a 16th of an inch of that red leaf, which is a conversion of the hemicellulose and liquid. So you're, you're actually utilizing three sixteenths of an inch of that one inch thick stave. Well, the whiskey's going to soak a half inch into that stave during the maturation process. So there's five sixteenths of an inch of flavor that you didn't create. And so again, not knocking those companies, they're, they're getting to make some great whiskeys they're satisfied with. But what we're able to do, we're so small and I'm able to focus my time and attention on creating as much flavor, penetrating that heat deep into there and converting all that flavor, a good full half inch into the wood and, and creating much more flavor that that wood has to offer by, uh, uh, by going through the process and, and, and paying attention to detail. One of my favorite things getting... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, that was so much good information. I'm, I'm processing it as I'm trying to speak and I should really take a second because that's it's one of the best descriptions of what happens during toasting and charring that I think we've ever had on, on the podcast. One of my, um, my favorite souvenirs from a distillery is taking a barrel stave. Um, I know a lot of people are kind of, it's in, it's in vogue to make a stave wall. Like right now I'm using a, a virtual background. I want to make a love real it. one. Yeah, I love it in the background. <laughs> um, yeah, this is a great picture. I, I love it. But uh, I, I want to make a real one one day. And, um, you know, I want to be a real boy. But uh, the one of my favorite things to look at is that um, the the penetration line, the red line of, of where. The, yeah, the soak line. The, yeah, the soak line of where the yep. whiskey got to in the wood. And um, I think this is a good you're the good person to ask on this is some of the time I see the soak line and it's getting pretty deep into that wood and i'm just curious is, is there a situation in which the soak line would quite literally just reach the outside of the barrel or their natural processes that stop that from happening no it can if that barrel's not constructed properly there's no question you know back back when i uh, was in the cooperage business um you know again white oak's expensive and, um, you know, the material cost itself is, is well, back then it was 60 to 70% of the overall cost. And so they, they tried to what they called save wood. In other words, when they joined staves, they would join them by hand. They don't have the, the latest technology equipment back when I was there, but they'd use these big wheels that had knives that they'd set in there and they joint wood. And they, they try to leave what they call saw marks. In other words, you didn't want saw marks going halfway through the stave. And so if you had two staves that had saw marks on them, from where the, the stave was originally cut, but it had a smooth joint at least halfway through the joint. You get two staves that had saw marks. I mean, you, you could see, you know, an eighth of an inch gap. May not be leaking, but you have an eighth of an inch gap. Now, summertime comes around. Summertime comes around and those barrels expand. I mean, I, I've seen barrels in the warehouse that look like the Michelin man. They're bulging <laughs> between the hoops, okay? Yeah. And, um, and so what happens when that expands and that whiskey's already soaked halfway in there. If you got those saw marks, guess what? You just create an opportunity to, to, to lose some, some whiskey through, through uh, uh, leakage. So, again, there, there's a number of things. And I think over time, um, it, it's, still, it's still important to not waste wood. By the same token, with the latest technology, a lot of the CNC uh, uh, planers and joiners, I mean, they're giving you a free, good, clean joint all the way through the thickness of the stave. They're not, they're not worried about, about saw marks. Still concerned about saving wood because if you don't, if you, if you lose that concern, you're not going to make any money. 
Right. Uh, so one other question on the on the Cooperage, and then I promise we'll act, we'll get to the uh, the product at hand. Is I only noticed this on a, on my most recent trip, and in one of the distilleries, that around the head of the barrel, um, where the barrel head meets the um, the Cooper's the uh, what is it the it's the crows of the, the chime. There we go. Thank you. Yeah, the notch um, is called called the crows, and, and the part the stage that stick above the head is called the chime. Right. So where the head meets the crows, uh, there's a um, a paste of some kind. It looks like a glue, but a paste. Uh, apparently, sometimes it's just simple flour and water. Um, I don't think I'd ever noticed that before. I'd certainly never heard of it, or or I don't remember reading about it. So, what is that paste used for? And um, I don't know about a paste. You know, some of the old coopering methods they, they would use the paste to help seal the the uh, the bead of the head in the crows itself. Well, I think what you're probably seeing is it clear or is it white looking? Uh, I'd say clear to a little cloudy, but look, okay, probably clear to clouds. So what that is, David? Uh, I'll go back to my Seagram days when we would get barrels, and we had our own coopers back there. Actually, in Memphis, Tennessee, Seagram did at the time, but we had a product called Geon. And it was a latex base sealant. And we just put it over the crow's area and the ends of the staves, the chime. A lot of times when whiskey soaks into that, that, that stave, the evaporation, a lot of the evaporation will find its way up through the stave structure and out the end of the chime, mm. at the end of the staves. And so by sealing that, you retard some of that, uh, uh, that evaporation loss. And Seagram's did that. Number one, to kind of help control and, and, and get more gallons out of a, a mature barrel of whiskey by uh, trying to eliminate some of, some of the evaporation loss. It's still going to evaporate, and you need to do that through the maturation for it to properly mature. But then the second important piece is the VOCs, the volatile organic compounds. When, when that whiskey ethanol, you know, the angel share, as they call it, well, that contains volatile organic compounds, and, and uh, um, uh, there's a mold. I'm sure you've seen around a lot of the series a mold that's uh, indigenous in this part of the country, and it loves the carbon in an ethanol molecule, and it mm -hmm. feeds on it. And that's why you look at a lot of these warehouses or trees trees on the distillery, and they're black with that mold. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. Makes sense. It was just something that I had never seen before, and uh, yeah, uh, not, it, not everybody's uh, no. doing that. I see some companies yeah. still do it. Um, you know, I, Seagram's did a study, and it, it showed that it improved. Um, you know, the outages by, by a little bit, but, uh, and, you know, every penny counts, especially back in the 1970s when we started using it, you know, the mm -hmm. finance people were looking at ways to cut costs because sales were going down, you know? Right. As in, yeah, the vodka, the gin, the clear spirits all coming up and they did the, yep. the dark, the dark days of whiskey. <laughs> all right. So we have come to the, the product at hand, which is the new one, yeah. the chicken cock Island rooster. So, yeah. So, you know, you, you got, you said you had a bottle of our bourbon and a, and a rye, you know, and then there are chicken cock island roost. We have two bottle designs actually. And both of these bottles are actually uh, replicas of pre-prohibition bottles that chicken cock used uh, many, many years ago. And, and so back then they were a pint size, but we just took the same bottles, blew them up to 750 milliliter and then, uh, uh, you know, uh, made, made replicas. Uh, the island rooster is one of our, what we call LTOs, limited time offerings. Every year, uh, Grain and Barrel does a couple of LTOs. And uh, back in 2021, Marty and I, along with some other folks, had a discussion about LTOs we wanted to do for 2022. 
And, you know, I told Monty, he said, you know, I really love the spicy peppery notes of our rye. And I think it would be a, a great product if we could enhance it a little bit with sweetness. And so he agreed and, and um, we, we acquired 25 rum barrels and I, uh, uh, they showed up at Bardstown Distillery in uh, May of 2021. The day they arrived, I went down there, you know, threw up the, the door on the trailer, climbed up on the trailer and I pulled the bungs out of all 25 barrels and I nosed them. I want to make sure that they were freshly dumped. And I had that nice, sweet rum smell. You know, a lot of times when a container of barrels is, is stuck in a port somewhere or whatever, and in the hot summer, hot heat of the day, or mm -hmm. down in the, in the Caribbean or whatever, uh, you know, they can turn sour. And so you got to be real careful. But every barrel was nice, sweet, had great rum smell. And so I put our rye in it and I would check it every month. You know, one of my biggest rubs with, with finished whiskey is that you don't want to allow the secondary barrel to overpower the flavor of the base whiskey. You just want to mm -hmm. enhance it. And so that, that's what we did here. I, I wanted to make sure it didn't get too much rum, too much sweetness. And so I check it every month. After six months, I said, boom, that's it. We're going to dump the barrels now. I don't want to add any more sweetness to it. So in November of 2021, we dumped those barrels and we held that whiskey in a tank. The uh, uh, grain and barrel didn't want to bottle it to the first quarter of, of 2022, being an LTO for 2022. And so we actually bottled at the end of February, um, but I absolutely love it. It's, it's 95 proof. And again, that's one of the things that I personally worked on. Uh, our, our bourbon and our, our flagship bourbon, our flagship rye, they're both 90 proof products. And what I try to do in, in my commitment to, to providing a high quality product is that I, I start knocking down the proof till I get to the point where the alcohol burn subsides. It allows the, the flavors to really overtake the profile. And every, every whiskey is different what, 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 where that point is. Uh, you know, we could bottle it at 80 proof and get a heck of a lot more bottles per barrel out from a financial perspective. Mm -hmm. But uh, the true commitment to, to maintaining that, that high quality reputation is that, uh, you know, that's why our, our flagship brands are offered at 90 proof. And this one was 95. You know, I tried it at 86 proof. It was too diluted. I tried it at 90 proof, too diluted. I kept bumping it up. 92 93 still too diluted but at 95 boom that's when it really popped and, and the flavors really expanded and overtook the profile so that's why it's at at 95 proof but uh, i just absolutely love it I, again we i think we accomplished the goal of maintaining the rye characteristics of the, the um, you know the nice spicy peppery notes and just with enough sweetness of the rum you know molasses uh, sweet flavor uh, even though the rum is actually sugar cane base uh, rum, where, where the barrels uh, uh, originally were, um, it just 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 the right amount of balance. It, it's so good. I it's my favorite go-to for an after-dinner drink. I'm not a big dessert guy, um, mm. not big on sweets, but I do have a sweet tooth every now and then after a great meal, and I'll pour a little bit of this in a, in a Glencairn. And, oh my gosh, just a neat. Or if it's hot outside, I go sit by the pool and put a an ice cube in it, and man, I'm I'm in heaven. So. No, I agree. It, it's, uh, it, I just love the balance of it. Balance is a big thing for me. I'm, I am a proof hound at some time, so I do love a higher proof spirit, but particularly when it comes to finishing that balance between, you know, getting the flavor of the finishing without overtaking the whiskey is a very fine line. And it's one that I think, um, many distilleries, and I'm confident in saying many are still trying to figure out where that balance is sure um yeah the, there, there's uh, no there's no written script for that you know it, 
it's right. you a lot of it's trial and error and, and using your experience and knowledge, and, and but you got to taste it. You're right. Yep. And of course, the the two products that I immediately think of that this will go next to in terms of if you're doing a side by side. One we mentioned earlier, which was the Angels Envy Rye, finishing in rum, um, and then the other one. I would put there uh, would be um, Doc Swinson's Alter Ego Rye, finishing in rum. Um, I don't know if you've had that one. I haven't um, tried the Doc Swinson's. No. Yeah. So they're, um, you know, they're a smaller company out, out of California. They buy MGP, and um, the head blender there, Jesse Parker, is actually just talking to him last night about because he's got a whole new line of of uh, finishings that he's come out with. Something that's very important to him is exactly what you said. And he said it almost verbatim is what you said. I want to try these finishings. They should match up with the whiskey, but they can't overtake the whiskey. Right. It's got to be a balance. And uh, when I first spoke to him about a year ago, we were comparing just the two, the Angel's Envy and his rye. And the Angel's Envy was very desserty. Tons of maple, tons of sugar, very sweet. Um, has its place. I don't think it's bad. Has its place. But um, his rye was much closer to what you're doing at, at Chickencock with Island Rooster, where the, the rum and the rye are meant to balance each other out and elevate the two together into a greater whole than the sum of its parts. Well said. Yeah. Um, and so to dig into that um, a little bit more, and that, and that means that both of them are by necessity. They're, of course, sweet because they have some rum in there, but they're not dessert sweet. I don't think you could have it for an after dinner. It's delicious that way. Trust me. It's real. I'm not talking to you, you know, but to the listener, it's delicious um, at any point in the meal, but it doesn't have to be a dessert thing. It's really the, the point. And so the, the first question I have is you mentioned that these are sugarcane rum uh, barrels. Um, are you able to tell where they're from? No, unfortunately, I had to sign a non-disclosure on that one, David. But uh, I tell people, yeah, number one, they are sugarcane-based rum, not molasses. And uh, they came from the Caribbean. So that should narrow it down a little bit. Yep, fair, fair. Um, that does help. And uh, I, of course, will always respect NDAs, part of the business at this point. But I couldn't get away with not asking. Yeah, so No problem. You're not the first person that's asked, trust me. <laughs> no, of course. Of course not. Um, all from the same, just still the same place. Oh yes, absolutely. All from the same yes. place. Okay. Did you? Uh, I'm I'm asking questions around the thing, of course. So, um, were you able to go to or try the um, potential rums that you were going to finish, and and kind of select which one you wanted, or was this the one that kind of happened to be available and that and it matched, and you just went with that? It happened to be available, and it's good quality rum so i said heck yeah let's do it all right uh so one of the other questions you you semi answered uh in in talking about how the rum barrels got to you and um of course what can happen to them if they're let left to sit for too long before they're refilled uh the timeline was about six months for the finishing the first time around um, but you also said that, and this was in another interview, you said that there was enough rum flavor in there, still in the barrels, to be able to use them a second time, maybe a little bit longer, seven months instead of six, which to me, it's not a, it's not a huge time difference in there. So my guess, and you tell me how right or wrong I am here, is that 
those barrels had to be pretty wet when they came to you to um to still after the first six month maturation have that much rum flavor in there to impart to the second batch that's that correct that yeah actually they were yeah so um you're right we did two rounds of it uh the first round we we bottled it was a little over a, a, a thousand six pack cases so um, a little over 6,000 bottles. And, and unfortunately, it was not distributed throughout the U.S. in our markets. You know, we're in about, I think, 42 states, but um, it was allocated to certain, certain states. And there was so much, um, from, from a smell perspective, I mean, there's so much rum flavor still left in those barrels that we refilled them and, and did it again. And uh, again, I, I aged them on the upper floor of a warehouse, a seventh floor, actually, of a warehouse. And so it kind of helps that process uh, uh, enhance it a little bit uh but yeah it took about seven months the second round to get to get comparable to the flavor profile of the first round but so again that i feel like the seven months it's not it's not like you needed two years as opposed to six months kind of thing like it's still it's seven months just one month more is remarkable to me yeah it, uh, it worked i mean tell you what it, it's it's phenomenal yeah. and, and again it's all about you said earlier it's all about tasting you know uh, doing doing the sensory analysis, the nose, the palate, and making sure you got you got samples from the previous batch and the first batch to compare against. Absolutely. So uh, the I guess the next perhaps obvious question is: you've done two rounds of it. Um, it is a lim an LTO, but are there any plans to try to do it again anyway as as another round of LTO? You know, I, I haven't heard anything thus far. You know, you never say never, I guess. But, uh, you know, we've got other LTOs that we're working on. We're actually uh, going to be bottling one here very soon. It's going to come out for the holiday season for the last quarter of the year. Uh, mm -hmm. It's going to be called Chicken Cock Chanticleer. Uh, mm -hmm. Chanticleer is, is French for rooster. And mm -hmm. there's uh, a lot of French connection there with, uh, you know, the bourbon history itself and bourbon whiskey and, uh, you know, uh, Bourbon County was named after the Bourbon family, who's a ruling family of France, who helped America defeat the British uh, during the American Revolutionary War. And of course, chicken cock um, was uh, originated in Paris, uh, Kentucky, um, in Bourbon County. And so, you know, there's a lot of French connection there. And of course, uh, the French, other French connection is it's bourbon that we finished in cognac barrels. Mm. And so, again, different animal. Cognac is so powerful in flavor and overwhelming. And so you had to be real careful. And so this is actually a blend. The cognac barrels we were able to procure, we had different sizes of them. We had some, some uh, 225 liters. We had some hogsheads, which are 300 liters. And so, again, you're going to get some variation there. So there's a lot more blending uh, to, uh, to come up with, with the finished product. And, and so the actual finishing in the cognac lasted anywhere from say a, a month and a half up to four months uh, in the cognac barrels. But the final blended uh, product is, is fabulous. That's to, to your point, that is really a very short finish um, to achieve that balance. So yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, and, and actually by the time, because um, just because of the way that the timeline's gonna work out. So this podcast episode should air about just before I think that finish will be released so um, we'll definitely be talking about it a little bit more and i'll put a uh, you know a note out that it's coming out when Great. the episode comes out and i will say that i'm gonna have to do a uh, call it a, a home team versus away team side by side so i'm gonna have to do the chicken cock 
against the um, Bardstown Bourbon Company Ferrand. So you got yeah, two cognac go. finishes. Yeah. I, I love doing side by sides, not for the purposes of, of not for the purposes of rating. I don't believe in doing it that way, but for the purposes of just seeing two ways that people can do the same thing that's on same thing on paper. I know a lot more goes into it. It's not the same thing, but the same thing on paper and see what that is like. Yeah. You know, we talked about trial and error and that's, I know the first time that they, they, uh, tried the, the cognac finish, they, they really left it in there too long. So luckily they were able to blend it off with some younger stuff as well to come up with the Ferran, which, which I like, I think it's, it's delicious actually. Yeah. I got to try it while I was down uh, in Louisville at the, yeah. at the Brown. So, and that was, I think a 10 month finish, I want to say, which is, which sounds a little long, but it was pretty long. You know, it worked. It worked. Good. Um, all right, Greg, I have taken an hour and a half of your time. I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, this was an excellent, fascinating episode. Learned so much about this. Um, I'll throw you one last kind of softball question um, to close out, which is uh, you're, you're one of the rare, rare people. And I think I would put you in the class of like Pam Howman, who I've talked to before. And um, just as people who have had about as wide ranging an experience as you can have in this industry from, from management to being on the floor, cooperage, distillation, everything. Um, someone gives you the option tomorrow to choose one part of that process and one part of the industry to kind of ride off into the sunset with which one you going with? I'll probably just ride off in the sunset because it all, it's all important to me. It's all, all, every aspect is so critical to coming up with, with the one quality product. And so I don't think that you can really just focus on, on one or the other. Um, so at that point in time, if, if I've sold, I, that's the only chase, choice I'd have, I'd probably go ahead and go into full retirement. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Greg, thank you so much. Again, um, you can find Chickencock through uh, the website, through I'll, and I'll put notes to the website, to all social media in show notes for this episode. Uh, again, the Island Rooster is out and available now. It, you can go to the Chickencock website to find it. Uh, about the time this episode comes out, the Cognac finish should be coming out too. So I'll update you listeners on that as well. Um, Greg, stay on with me for just a second after we finish recording. Sure. And it's been another episode of the Whispering Podcast. See you next week.